Previously, the children of Israel were led in, out of Egypt. They bore witness for a, quite some time about the judgments that God had laid upon the gods of Egypt, the false gods, including their worshipers. And the children of Israel got to bear witness that they were excluded from all this, that they were more than special, that they were counted as God's children. God heard their cries and he sent them a messenger in Moses. And as things started getting progressively worse from Pharaoh, their unbelief started disappearing even though they did bear witness. It wasn't until finally the death of the firstborn, the tenth plague, where both the Israelites and the Egyptians were included in this one plague that the Jews finally understood. Yes, our oppressors finally going to let us go. But they also had a, um, a ceremony of, of Passover did they fully understand that something else had to be sacrificed, had to take their place, had to redeem them. Now, go fast forward into the desert. As they went into the desert, Pharaoh is sitting at his throne, of course, him and his advisors, along with his advisors, are saying, man, what have you done? Where is our economy now? What are we going to do? As a matter of fact, I know they're not coming back. They're not going on their three-day journey. They're going to be gone longer because they took all their belongings. They took all their stuff. They took our stuff, too. We paid them to leave. So this isn't right. I want what's mine back. So Pharaoh went after them. At this time also, God had led them into a cul-de-sac between two mountains and the Red Sea. And, of course, they're camped by this place. All of a sudden, the Egyptians come about through the horizon. And the Israelites start panicking. The first thing they do is that they start pointing a finger at Moses. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here? Why have you condemned us to death out here? We'd rather go back into the world. But Moses kept telling them, he kept trying to assure them, Be still, the salvation of the Lord is upon us. He's going to save us at this time. But they wouldn't have any of that. It wasn't until then, God spoke to Moses, Now turn around. Stick out your rod and your hand. Wave your hand over the sea and the sea started splitting in two. God held the sea back. Two walls, two great walls. And he assured Moses that the children of Israel would walk upon dry land. Not marshy land, not muddy land, not damp land, but it was a dry land. As they went on through, actually before that, before they went through, the... The column of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night went from before them to behind them to protect them, to hide their oppressors from the cliffs so that they would no longer see them, bring them that assurance. Israelites went on through. And now we see that Pharaoh, his heart was hardened. But we can, as I've explained last week, there's a couple of chapters that gives us an indication that maybe Pharaoh did not. He was probably the lone survivor that went back to Egypt. Of course, how did they know who was what happened to their people? You got the one lone king going back and probably explaining to his people and of course word got out. My gosh, we had thousands of men disappeared. All because of this one God who brought judgment upon us. The God that fought for Israel. And so Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea. And it wasn't until then that we'll see in chapter 15 now that the oppressors were gone. Now they knew that they were surely free. And it's kind of a contradiction nowadays if you consider what just happened this past weekend. Saddam Hussein was executed. 
half the country is celebrating and the other half is in mourning. Uh, maybe they're confused or maybe we just don't have the whole story. But in this case, we know one thing for sure, that the oppressor of the children of Israel were finally gone <clears throat> and we see them breaking into a song here. It's the first recorded song in the Bible and it's attributed to Moses. It's known as the Song of Moses and of Israel. And verse 1 says, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang the song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Now between verse 1 and up to verse 21, it's basically split into four categories with the exception of verses 20, uh, I'm sorry, of nine, 19 and 21. It's more like a, a summary of what happened, like more like a refrain. So we basically have verses 1 through 5, four stanzas, 6 through 10, 11 through 13, and 14 through 17. The first two stanzas, uh, they end up with, they went down, they sank, concerning their oppressors. And then the other two concern God's holy place. The righteousness, the judgment, the wrath of God in the first two, and then how he is glorified. In, um, in Revelation chapter 15, well, let me explain. This, this song here comes about after how a redemption came about. Of course, the people start bursting the song. In Revelation chapter 15, verse 3, starting at verse 3, we have another song of Moses sung by the saints. And it says this, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over their beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. And one part we see after the Red Sea, after they had left the world, after God had delivered them to a special place, the provisions that he's given them, they sing a song. In the future, God is going to take his saints out of another world, out of another place, into his place. And the song of redemption comes from the heart. Now, have you ever noticed how what worship might mean to you? A lot of people maybe avoid worship Sunday mornings or whenever worship is um, uh, provided. Perhaps it's not understood. Worship is very important in coming together as well as being drawn closer to God in your relationship. It's a personal thing as well as a corporate thing. We come, in as, we come as individuals. We can worship as individuals, but as a whole, we come together as a family. And how important is it for us? What exactly is worship? Do we pray? Let me ask you something. Have you ever been in so much prayer by yourself? You had time by yourself and you just closed your eyes, poured out your heart, maybe for yourself, for your family, for friends, but you still poured out your heart. And it seems like the world just fades away. In the same way, worship should be the same. What is the matter of your heart? What is the attitude of your heart? Did you come to worship God? 
It might not be the song that you like. It might not be the arrangement that you like or the key that you like, but it's still there provided for you. If you can't sing with any of those, just sit back and relax. Close your eyes. Let the world fade away. If you pray, you should be able to worship. It's very important. And as a member of the worship team here, I know it is my job to provide for the worship team, to prepare them, so that by the time we come on together on Sunday, we are not only in worship, but we are supposed to help draw you in. Now, I was told before that if everybody's not worshiping, I'm not doing my job. Well, that's not fair. Because if whoever I witness to, if they don't accept Christ, I'm not doing my job. Well, no, that's not fair. It's the matter of the heart. I've seen many people come by in here with their arms folded, already having that attitude. Okay, they don't, want to, they don't want to receive worship, but are they receiving the word later when the pastor delivers it or whoever else is teaching? It's a matter of the heart. It's, it's a reflection, a time of reflection. And here we see the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, just singing out loud. And in verse 2 it says, The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will extol Him. It's almost reminiscent of Psalm 23, if you, if you are familiar with, that, with the shepherd song. The Lord is my shepherd. There is an identification here. I only have one, and I know who His name is. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is my shepherd. In John chapter 10, He tells us, I am the good shepherd. Here, the children identify themselves with Yahweh, Jehovah, is my strength and my God. He has become my salvation. And it's awesome how now finally they finally get it. Now they finally trust in the Lord here that He is my God. I will praise Him. There are no other gods. There are no other elements or components that can take His place. My Father's God, perhaps... It was from the covenant fathers, from the time of old. This is the God I identify with. He is the one true and living God. He says, I am, in Exodus chapter 3. He is still the true and living God. He is the one in whom we will worship. And verse 3 says, the Lord is a warrior. God is a warrior. Jehovah is a warrior. And it kind of puts a kink in the idea of people's like, well, and some people, I remember the suntan carpenter Jesus ministering to little kids. How can he have such a wrath? But a righteous God does. If you recall in Revelation chapter 19 where he comes back, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And it goes on that explains that the last thing it says, He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. First he came as a lamb, and he will come back as a lion. In judgment, in righteous judgment, and it says, the Lord is his name. There at the end of the verse 3. Now, this is an answer to, I'm sure, Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Which one of these gods will, uh, are you referring to here? I don't know which one, so I guess that doesn't count for me. 
But I want to go back to briefly verse 2. If you have a King James Version, it's only in King James that says this. It says, And I will prepare him a habitation. So basically in the King James it says, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. So I've said this, this phrase only occurs in the King James Version. I've checked approximately 16, 14 versions, and none of those say that. And I wish I had an explanation for you. But it's just something just to keep out, uh, an eye out for. And verse 4 says, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. And the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Perhaps it was their armory that kept them weighted, weighted down. Or if you can even consider, maybe they were pulled down. Don't know. Fact is that they drowned. They went down and guess what? They're not coming up again. They can't tread in armor. Verse 6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The right hand was a skill, a symbol of skill, of power, as well as favor. In Psalm 45, verse 4, it says, God's right hand teaches us. Psalm 48, 10 says, God's right hand is full of righteousness. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Father invites the Son to sit at His right hand. And in Habakkuk 2.16, it says, The cup of God's judgment is held in His right hand. And verse 7 says, In the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes, consumes them as chaff. We see references in the end times from Jesus, how he basically tells us how his enemies are going to be blown away like a chaff is in the wind. In Malachi 4, verse 1, it says, For behold, the day is coming, one of the many end time scenarios here, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be as stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 8 says, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. It's interesting how it says the blast of his nostrils. If you recall the movie, The Ten Commandments, there was these two children with a blind grandfather, and they were witnessing the seas being split open. And the children say, Look, grandfather. Of course, grandpa's blind, but okay. Look, grandfather, the waters are, are dividing up. And the old man says... By his nostrils, by the breath of his nostrils, does he separate the sea. And I thought, oh, how typical 1940s-ish poetry here. But I didn't realize how much homework Cecil B. and his men did here. It's incredible. It says Moses here. He's using the, what's that word, anthropomorphic? Anthropomorphic. (laughs) Don't ask me to spell that. He's using a terminology that we can equate to as as having bodies here. It says, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. Verse 9 says, the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will destroy them. 
seems to me that if if I recall, I think in Ezekiel chapter 28, someone had come up with some five I will statements. And he says, I will be like the Most High. I will sit in the congregation of the saints and so on. It was a prideful thing. And it was pride found in the heart of Lucifer. He said, I will do these things. I will be like the Most High. And here Pharaoh, in his own piousness and arrogance, says, I will bring back what is mine. Um, So far he's 04, however many times he tried going up against God. Verse 10 says, You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11 says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? You are nothing like those idols. They could not have been protected. Their agriculture, their animals, their everything that was about them could not have been protected against the true God. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders, Now, isn't it awesome how we consider how God works in our lives? As we've discussed before, we could be along life's path and we could see a storm coming when we come a fork in the road. It's like, well, I don't want to turn to the right because that's where the storm is. So I'll go left. And all of a sudden you see this storm move. No matter where you go, left or right, that storm still follows you. But God sees us through. He is not a God that desires the worst for us. He has nothing but good thoughts on us. And as I've told the kids on Sunday nights, if God had a wallet with pictures and it all be of you, if He had a refrigerator full of magnets, then all those pictures would be of you up there. How wondrous are His works. How wondrous how He keeps us. And isn't it great how we hear testimony week after week and how God has kept us and has been faithful also. Verse 12 says, You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Now it's interesting how it tells us in the previous chapter how the sea opened up and swallowed them. I just want to throw this out for you. Maybe the sea drowned them, but where were the rest of the bodies? Or or maybe the earth did perhaps swallow some of them up. I don't know. But for whatever reason, Moses says that as they saw their bodies floating on the seashore, remember, in the previous chapter. But here it says that the earth swallowed them up. Just something to consider here. Verse 13 says, Your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. If we recall the Passover, the redemption... And then how we saw the baptism, if you will, through the Red Sea. They both needed each other. It's just like the death on the cross and the resurrection. One without the other. It's basically meaningless because if Jesus died and never resurrected, what would be our faith, our relationship? We needed that resurrection, that great redemption, that redemption price right there. And verse 13 says... Again, in your loving kindness, you have led people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. As a shepherd leads his flock to the fold. So God was also leading Israel to 
his habitation, the, the Holy Land. He was going to lead them through. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Now here, it's like almost Moses just prophesying the news of this great event that has occurred because all of Pharaoh's army was wiped out. Probably outnumbered all these countries or these nations put together. Who knows? But still, it was a great thing that now they, it, the news is going to go out that God had fought for his people. They're not someone to be messed with. And if you recall later on in Joshua, especially chapter 2, where Rahab the, har, um, the harlot tells the spies, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. This is 40 years later. So Moses is, is not only prophesying here, but he's also giving an order of the way to the promised land through Philistia, through Edom, through Moab and Canaan. Verse 16 says, Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until, and I like that word, I like these words, until your people pass over, O Lord. Until the people pass over whom you have purchased. Anytime you see a word until, I've, I've learned, underline it, circle it, highlight it, however, because Moses was assured by God, I will take you to a land flowing with milk and honey, all the people. Moses already has it in his heart. I know this is true. God has fulfilled every promise, every assurance, every blessing, even though we're not deserving he is going to deliver us. And he, look what he did. He delivered them. And so now he says, this is going to occur until, until. And verse 17 says, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Now verse 19 says, For the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. Mary and the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. Here we have a common sister of Moses and Aaron, but for whatever reason, it's listed here just for Aaron. And it's the first mention of, her, of their sister's name is Miriam. And she's also listed as the first prophetess in the Bible here. There have been numerous prophetesses throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. We have uh, Deborah, who was also a judge in the book of Judges. Huldah in, in Second Kings. Nodiah in Nehemiah. Isaiah's wife in Isaiah. Anna in the book of Luke, chapter 2, and Philip's four daughters in the book of Acts, chapters, in chapter 21. Now, in Malachi, it also mentions um, that, I'm sorry, in Micah, in 6.4, it gives us that, um, he, Micah suggests that she had a leadership role along with Aaron and Moses in bringing the children through, through the wilderness into, into the land. 
However, she abused this position later on, as we'll see if we ever get to it in the Lord's time. And um, I believe in the book of Numbers, to where she almost leads a revolt or questions God. Moses, are you really God's leader? After all we've witnessed and heard and seen, are you really? (laughs) Kind of like Korah's rebellion, but except someone closer. And the timbrel is more like a tambourine. It's associated mostly with women at that time. And if you can tell, in verse 1 it says, Moses and the sons of Israel. Now here in verse 20 it says, Miriam and all the women. So it's almost, I don't want to say a split congregation, but it's almost like the men are singing over here and the women would be replying over here in another verse. Verse 21 says, Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea worship is highly essential in the service in study personal I used to work in Indiana Jones if many of you ever been on there and they have various scenes and one of the scenes is there is like a mummy chamber a bunch of skeletons hanging around and painted on the walls or whatever but there have been times where I've just been in deep prayer just worshiping God, even though I was on third shift away from my family, I was still worshiping and praising Him. Number one, for the God, for, for my God, for Him, for His faithfulness, for my children, for my wife, for my health, for my job, for the things that God has given me, my house, this fellowship. And it's it's interesting how I can just be blown away. Now I think back, but I, it, it's all God that the world just faded around me. And because it's, a, it's such a huge building, that place can echo. And I would occasionally sing or whistle in there. And I knew people would hear me on the other side of the building but wouldn't say anything. Worship, no matter where you're at. 91 Freeway? Eh, it counts. <laughs> Except in high time. But worship is essential. It is your alone time with God. When we come together as a fellowship, If I can encourage people, I think I'll start doing that on Sundays. If you want to worship God with your hands up, with your eyes closed, not singing, singing loud, singing off key, whatever the case, this is between you and God. Man here is not the audience because this is like a time of prayer. There was the other fellowship that I was at. This woman sang loud, atrociously loud. Occasionally she was on tune. And it got so bad that we had monitors like this, but I think we're closer to us on the stage. And I looked at, the, at one of the singers next to me like, why are you singing that wrong note? And she's looking at me like, that wasn't me. So people used to complain about her, but rather than hinder her spirit, I tried elevating others and say, then you need to sing louder. <laughs> In hindsight, it was a blessing. It really was. If you can turn briefly with me to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, it gives us another brief description of what we're going to encounter later on with the children of Israel here. But it talks about worship. The Psalms are full of worship and how we should approach it. It should not be a hindrance or a weight, but more of an opportunity. There are many places throughout the world outside of this country that people do not have this kind of freedom. Psalm 95, verse 1, it says, Oh, come, Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it was He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, and he, the psalmist here gives a warning to the people here, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest." We cannot consider ourselves any better than the children of Israel, even though these were made for an example for us. And I know I fail this every day. I don't know if I take advantage of it because I know I'm one of the king's kids, but I need to act like it more. I know I do. I know I need to think like it more. But there is a point. There is a breaking point. You know, Papa's going to come out and bring the spanking tool. (laughs) And I want to avoid that. But here it says, you know, we have good reason, ample reason to glorify and praise God. Come into thanksgiving because He is God. And He says, don't do like they did because you will be punished. So what is worship, folks? It's a time, it's an opportunity just for you, for you alone. It was such a blessing to hear Mike talk about his family, how they all went and answered the altar call. And here we have the sons of Israel along with their families, about three million people, however many there were, along with the, um, the, the, the people that they had taken along with them from Egypt. But you had the nation of Israel, families, neighbors, friends, acquaintances, all making that altar call and worshiping God, for they had bore witness. And to you, we all here have a reason to praise God no matter what condition, what situation, what thing we're going through right now. Can you praise God in the good as well as in the bad? Now here we have a, probably, real quick now, probably a, a picture of a non-believer. A non-believer would have God work in his life and he still wouldn't believe it. But we as Christians were there at one point. Now, when we see a trial or tribulation come our way, we should worship Worship before anything else happens. And I forgot one thing real quick. In Acts chapter 16, go there real quick. Acts chapter 16, concerning worship. What happens when you worship in trials and tribulations? Acts chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 19. We have Paul and Silas imprisoned for what? For bearing witness of who Jesus Christ was, right? Verse 19 says, But when her masters, when, this is when Paul had cast out this demon-possessed girl, uh, he had, had um, 
basically had cleansed the spirit from her, says, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. Throwing the confusion, they're setting the world right side up, and of course their fault is that they're also Jewish, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now here, don't, don't think of it as just a regular prison. These had many layers, many levels going down and below. And it wasn't good enough just to keep them in a the little cell here. Just to make sure he was doing his job, he took them down below into the dark chambers here of these prisons here. Verse 25 says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Even in their worst day, these guys weren't thinking about themselves, but thinking about the glories of God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke... And saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now here's where we got the situation. Okay, you're in charge of these guys. If they escape, then you get to serve their term. So he saw all these jail doors open. He thought, oh my gosh, I'm not going to live long enough for this. I might as well, you know, commit harikari. <laughs> Verse 28 says, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, with, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. How are we acting through our tribulations? You saw the rest of the prisoners here listening and watching Paul and Silas worshiping God and singing hymns. Chances are, maybe the rest of the prisoners got saved also along with the jailer. Are you worshiping God in the bad times as well as the good? In all times, in all seasons? And this, brothers and sisters, was paid for. We can come at any time. Any time. We don't need a mediator, another man, through religion telling us we need a hop, skip, and a jump through a hoop of fire. We at any time can go before the Lord, lift each other up, lift ourselves, be asked to be lifted up, and, and just fall before Him. So consider worship again. What does it mean to you? What do you do with it? Father, thank you, Lord, so much for this time. I pray, Lord, that you just be glorified by this study. Allow us, Father, to also consider and contemplate and digest these words, Lord. And what a personal relationship we have with you, all that you've done in our lives, what you've done in the past, Lord, what you're doing now, what you're going to do in the future. 
And Father, help each one of us also to consider what worship truly means. It's easy for us, Lord, to sing on the other side of the Red Sea. But help us, Father, to sing before we enter into it and when we're going through it. For we know, Lord, that you are with us. You guide us through, Lord. You are the Good Shepherd. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.